Welcome back to Enhanced Investor. Today is Monday, February 12th, 2018, and we are live in Cambridge doing a fantastic Q&A with everybody for our Enhanced Investor Elite Gold and Crypto Elite Gold memberships. We're going to go through about 20 questions today and then have a few extra questions at the end. And uh, yeah, let's get started. So question number one is... What courses, classes, or extra education can we take to advance our skills and understanding of the market? All right, guys, this is Adam. Um, as we reviewed on Friday, um, I said that the most important class, um, if you're just starting off, is accounting. And I noted one of the reasons why was that accounting really is the cornerstone of finance because it helps measure a company's value. So you'll learn acronyms such as NPV, uh, EBITDA, PE, price to earnings ratios, and you'll understand the margins, among other things, that help traders assess a company's worth. I also noted that statistics or analytics help measure uh, a company's regression, tail risks, and other probability that you, know, you can use in higher analytical methods. Of course, macro and microeconomics, and why? Well, because if you understand what causes market failures, um, you know, insignificant capital liquidity, uh, you'll understand how to hedge um, the companies that have uh, extenuating or, or, or over leveraged the asymmetries or imperfect information, um, and all of the transaction and agency costs that go along uh, in that type of environment. And you're also going to learn about, you know, externalities <clears throat> and the public costs of asset and credit freezes uh, leading to reduced investing, uh, central banking, which deals with monetary policy, interest rates, unemployment, inflation, things like that. And also fiscal policy, which is, you know, what, what our legislative branches deal with on a daily basis with taxes and infrastructure, discretionary and uh, mandatory spending. And all of that goes, you know, all the way down to the point of sale system at uh, your local gas station or, or grocery store. So all of those classes are going to help with understanding um, labor and behavioral economics, emerging markets, international trade, um, which, go, again, goes hand in hand with uh, corporate finance and Forex, as well as capital markets and regulation. Um, I also think that it's, it's prudent to study the history of the financial of all the financial crises because it's going to yield some context uh, to everything that I've touched on. Um, and John, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. I, I'm, good evening, everyone. Um, I think I'm going to second a lot of things Adam mentioned, um, but you know, I was lucky enough in my undergrad uh, to manage a student run endowment fund that was around hundred thousand dollars at the time uh, when it was initially capitalized, but that gave me the ability to, Beyond the sand equity research, um, Adam mentioned a lot of things with accounting, which went hand in hand, um, understanding you know financial statements, so your income statement, your balance sheet, your cash flow statement, because you're going to be using those metrics to not only see where you know the company is at a point in time, but also use it to try and uh, put a forecast on you know the present value of those future cash flows. So that's extremely important if that's uh, you know an area you want to get into. Um, I think the question was catered towards you know a career, so. Um, you, you want to use your network, but you also want, you know, specific skill sets, more quantitative skill sets, such as, you know, mathematics skills, I think physics skills, we mentioned engineering skills. Um, those are 
technical skills that are going to get you in the door and make you unique. I think, you know, a lot of banks put you through, you know, come from a bank as well. They put you through programs where they can teach you the financial products, but if you have the skill sets to get up to speed very quickly and, um, you know, really use your intellect to, to make an impact, I think that's where you can stand out as well um, um, going forward and not only getting the job, but also, you know, uh, standing out from that perspective also. Fantastic. And as we talk about getting the job, what are some of the do's and don'ts? Like when networking, what tips do you have to approach or to approach potential employers, um, whether it be in finance or in other positions? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Um, I could touch upon, you know, from being in the industry. Um, you want to really use your network to, to the best of your ability, whether it's, you know, more specific, like family, close friends, uh, people you've met, or, you know, you want to dig into your um, you know, educational network from the university you're at. But um, as far as, you know, teeing up and catering those emails or phone calls, you really want to be as specific as possible. You know, know what you're passionate about, you know, show that passion, but also know where you want to go. You know, don't just be open-ended, but you want to be able to reach out with your specific request. And also don't say, hey, I need a job, but you want to say, hey, you know, this is what I'm interested in. I'm interested in your background and my research. You know, is it okay if we meet up? And you can ask for guidance and advice in the right direction. Not necessarily ask for a job, but advice on getting one. And um, usually that person will either help you in that fashion or put you in the right context with someone else. Uh, so that's, that's the best way to approach that. Um, and also when you reach out to someone within your network, you're also opening up their network, right? So it's, uh, it's knocking down enough doors where you're going to finally, you know, cross that area where, you know, you find your interest and you find your match and you really just show your passion and that person should hopefully, you know, point you in the right direction. Fantastic. All right, question number two. I know it's kind of personal and lifestyle dependent, but how much money is good to retire young, also known as financial independence or retiring early? Uh, One million seems kind of insufficient for a household with two parents and two kids. What advice do you have on that? Uh, Yeah, so there's not really a specific rule for that, right? It's going to vary by, you know, person, household, but... um, the best way to go about it is for a benchmark. You want to take your your desired um, annual retirement income and divide it by four percent. So let's say you need you feel you need a hundred thousand per year is, is your capable amount. You divide by four and you get you know two point five million. Um, you know say sixty thousand that would be one point five million. Um, that's just going to give you a benchmark on where you know your desired amount is and where you feel comfortable. But then again, it's also going to depend on your um, you know, your lifestyle and, and your specific goals and needs um, as you progress in life. But um, just I can go through it so everyone could kind of have an idea. You know, if it's if it's 40K, it would be a million, 50K, 1.25 million, 60 would be 1.5, uh, 70, 1.75, 80, 2 million, uh, 90, 2.25, up to 100, 2.5. And as we keep going out, of course, you double it, 200K would be 5 million. So that's just going by a 4% rule. That's kind of a benchmark around the street. Um, but again, I mean, I think the best bet would be because everyone has different circumstances and, and goals. So to be, meet with a financial advisor and, and uh, you know, come to a foundation of, of how you can set those expectations. Fantastic. Let's take that one step further. This is another question. So single male, 31 years old. Retirement seems really far away and unattainable for me. What recommendations do you have for investing in the long term? And when should I consider a shift from risky to more stable investments? 
Yes, that's a great question too. Um, I think, you know, 31 is very young, right? So, and when you're young, you want to try and develop sustainable income and you can, you can go with, you know, a slightly higher beta uh, mutual fund or um, equities. But my, my suggestion would be to stay, you know, with mutual funds that are largely U.S. equity, international equity, keep trying to grow, you know, sustainable income while you are young. Even with the volatility we saw last week, you know, fixed signal prices didn't really change, right? So, I mean, you're trying to, you know, amp up your returns while you're young and you could take slightly larger risks. Um, there's no specified period where you need to go into less risky investments, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's always keeping a keen eye of, you know, economic conditions and more you know, careful portfolio management. Um, it really never hurts to sit down with someone that's qualified in financial advisory and, you know, understand your goal and your background. But, you know, those, those mutual funds that are, that aim to, you know, really diversify and also, you know, build that sustainable income is important. Um, you know, we saw, you know, last week out of the 322 companies in the S&P 500 that uh, reported earnings, we saw 78 beat, you know, analyst expectations, um, you know, average revenue increase 14%, which is fantastic. So I think that's going to be a trend going forward. Um, and those, you know, large cap U.S. equity companies with, you know, some international exposure and allocations, such as in Europe, where profitability has been good, you know, those, that's where you're going to build that income going forward. And, um, you really want to try and stay there while you're young and, and uh, you know, take advantage of that while you can. Certainly, that's really good advice. Let's go one step further in the long term. Roth or 401k Roth or classic, which is better and why, depending on the person? Yeah, I think a portion of that question was, you know, if you're going to take money out before you're 65 and that's you know, not necessarily, you know, the point of, of your 401k, that's for your retirement, you're going to get hit with a 10% penalty. So if that's, you know, your goal, you should definitely, you know, meet with an advisor and, and tell them that. But, you know, that's not necessarily the goal of your retirement account. But um, your Roth 401k, the difference between the two is that in Roth, you're going to pay your taxes up front. Uh, in other words, you know, you can contribute to your retirement account with the money from your paycheck, you know, after it's already been taxed, right? Um, and traditional 401k, it's made with free tax dollars. So, your, your withdrawals are taxed as ordinary income. Um, so really, it's going to depend on um, your goals specifically. But, you know, the idea really is to, to get with a company that's going to match your contributions. And, you know, you really want to grow that income until you're at an age where and you can take it out where you're not going to be penalized for that. All right. Number five, what is the easiest way to keep track of your profit and loss in crypto so it's kosher with the government? So... We, we've talked a little bit about our profit and losses with brokerage firms, with standard trading, but what is a good way to keep track of it with crypto? So I'll start with this one, talk about it a little bit, and then we'll get into the stock and option side of it. So with crypto, the easiest way to keep track of it is just with an Excel spreadsheet. Because there's no centralized system, hence the nature of crypto at this point, you have to do a lot of your own work. You have to put it in as I bought this much and I sold for this much. And when we're trading, looking at like Bitcoin pairings or Ethereum pairings, stuff like that, we have to really keep into account that we're trading in these pairings, but we have to report it in the change in dollars. So even if you made money or let's say you lost money on the Bitcoin pairing, if everything's going up at the time of your trade, you actually made money on it. So you can't claim a loss for that trade. But as far as tracking it, you have to make sure that you keep it in dollars and just a very simple spreadsheet of here's the price when I bought it, here's the price when I sold it in dollars, 
and then a very simple Excel spreadsheet can do the math of here's the difference. So as far as taxes in stock options, futures, stuff like that through brokerage firms, um, Adam and John can answer that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, this, this kind of goes hand in hand with uh, calculating the short and long-term gains uh, into taxes. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> I'm going to suggest that you monitor your P&L uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, if you're just starting out, um, if you're, if you've been in the game, uh, you know, for five, 10 years, you should uh, more or less monitor on a quarterly basis uh, because you've had some time and you can export all of that data um, right into whatever tax uh, platform you, you, you're using. Um, I personally use H&R Block and um, I've never had an issue with, with exporting any, any data on that. Um, so that would, be, that would be the short answer for that. So that really leads into the next question of how do you add the net amount that's calculated from your short-term and long-term profit and losses? How do you how do you put that into taxes with, for example, H and R Block? Well, again, you're you know, <clears throat> unless you hire a CPA, you're going to be responsible for exporting that short-term and long-term data. So, if you, for example, held RDSB um, from oh, I don't know October of 2016 through yesterday or last week, you would have been paid a dividend and you would have only paid a capital gain tax um, for that, you know, 25, 30% run. Um, USO or something like that. And you, uh, you know, pick that up when oil was, you know, in the low fifties or, or mid fifties, and you sold it, you know, around 65.50 or 66, then you're going to pay a short, uh, short-term gain, uh, gain on that, which is basically just going to reflect the level of income at which you currently operate. So whatever your tax bracket is, and you'll know that, um, and you have to disclose that. Uh, it, it, and it'll be easy for, you know, again, E-Trade, TD Ameritrade, any of the brokers that you use, they're going to be able to help you export your data and it's going to populate automatically right into your tax form, um, and you'll know you'll know how much you you owe on that. Uh, so it's it's pretty straightforward. But if you need any help, that's what we're here for. All right, let's jump into number seven here. So IRS tracking foreign transactions. So whether it be with a foreign brokerage account or whatever, what are the odds of the IRS trying to track transactions on these foreign exchanges? Okay, so my initial answer for this, you know, again, as we talked, is that the IRS, <laughs> they have a difficult time, you know, enough time collecting taxes in the United States. <laughs> so, you know, the extent to which the IRS can effectively monitor all transactions in Forex is, is a dubious one at best. So as long as the amounts being traded don't breach $5 million, the IRS doesn't pay too much attention. And that's the truth of the matter. You have to think of it this way. 
the IRS, they may have resources to monitor sums at 45K, 10K, 500K, but it's really not worth their time. The opportunity cost is, is far too great. All right, number eight, this one is more geared towards last week, but the Dow Jones carnage, the market having a nice pullback, is the carnage going to continue more so? Is there going to be another wave down now that we've started a little bit of a recovery these last few days? Okay, so again, and I mentioned this on Friday, and so now I feel really smart. <laughs> um, I, I, what I had told the group on Friday was that I felt that the, the pullback was going to be transitory in nature, which means short-lived. Um, it was a much-needed correction, and it started with the jobs report on February 2nd when wage growth saw its first significant gains in nine years. Um, this was important because it caused, you know, the first concern was, was to pause in the upward trajectory because in the markets, higher wages lead to inflation and inflation requires higher levels of interest rates to keep inflation at the Fed, you know, the Federal Reserve's mandated 2%. Um, we also saw the instability of whether or not the government was going to stay open. And I, I noted that anytime there's a threat of a government shutdown, there's a cause for concern due to the money multiplier that won't be taking place if federal workers are temporary, uh, temporarily laid off. Um, so if President Trump says, shut it down, I don't care, shut it down, he's actually harming you know, his, the, his beloved economy in a way because it's a loss of revenue to both the, the government in forms of you know, federal workers' uh, taxes, you know, tax revenue, as well as the, uh, the money multiplier that goes from you know, continuing on uh, the economy. Those, those federal workers spend a lot of money in their communities, and if they all of a sudden pull back their spending, um, you know, others can't, uh, can't partake in that, in that economy. And so what I, the final thing that I want to note was that I felt that the Dow Jones Industrial Average really needed to play between 23,000 and 25,000 for a little while. Um, I think that you know what we saw. We we saw incredibly high valuations, uh, forward earnings, uh, expectations for companies, and it, it, this was a healthy pullback. Um, and and so again, the, if the Dow goes back and forth between twenty three and twenty five thousand, I, I don't have an issue with that. Yeah, and also for um, for those interested in more algorithmic trading, you know, last week was interesting, right? Because you know, just about everyone across the, of the street were, were short volatility for, for some time. And when street screens move against a short volatility position, um, you know, it's a computer passive trading function to sell equities. So and that's what you saw in the drawback last week. And, you know, when equities are sold, a lot of people, you know, they, they seek to receive more cheaper positions and they, you know, reevaluate and, and build uh, more specific valuations from that point as well. So that's why you saw a lot of volatility last week. And, uh, you know, there's been a, a major correction since. All right, on to number nine here, talking about the correction. What do you see causing the next market correction? Not so much the, the transitory one, but the one that should take place in the near future. Okay, so the only thing that would prompt um, or propel the market to go higher than where it already is is if the long needed infrastructure bill was actually passed. Um, the infrastructure bill 
if, if it's around 600, 800 billion dollars, you're going to see significant, um, you know, a significant surge in uh, employment. Um, there are going to be jobs created for uh, blue collar and white collar workers across the board, millions of jobs. Um, and this would actually have the effect that uh, the government wanted to have regarding the, the tax bill that was just passed. Um, that's the only thing that's going to stop the market from continuing an upward trend because you're going to have natural tendencies and regression to the mean. There are still geopolitical risks. Um, we do, we are seeing inflation, which is going to, again, prompt uh, interest rates to increase incrementally, um, perhaps faster than the Fed had previously planned. Um, and we've got exponential student loan and credit card debt. The levels of uh, default on credit cards right now are higher than they were during the crisis. Um, and we have, you know, the United States does have a, a national debt issue. Um, you know, so those, all of those, I, I would say that the, those, those are probably the top five, regression to the mean, geopolitical risk, inflation, and interest rates and student loan and credit card debt. Those are the top five. Um, and, and the national debt is something that I'd like to get into at a, at a later date and time, because I think it's important for people to understand the implications and how to prepare um, you know, for that. Uh, and all of this leads to you know, systemic risk and, and connectedness and um, whether or not all of these you know, topics are correlated um, and, and how quickly they can prompt contagion or you know, run on banks. So um, those, the, I think that those are, the, those are probably my top five of why we would see a longer pullback. Yeah, I'd agree with everything Adam said as well. And I think it's important too, if you see the briefs that we put out weekly, uh, we mentioned a lot of different global data, right? Because I mean, it's interesting that you know, all the global economies are so intertwined, right? The reason why we can't raise rates too quickly here in the US, even if we're in a good economic position is because it affects global banks as well, like the Bank of Japan, you know, Bank of Australia, Bank of England, and Bank of Canada, right? So we always put those um, economic briefs out and just such as employment data or interest rate decisions because they're largely interconnected and um, you know news from around the world and, and major economies is is more sensitive than ever so that's also something to consider all right and as we discuss the next correction if the markets go down what are the most interacting interesting sectors to get into while it's going down okay so I, again i mentioned this on friday but i said that the correction it depend upon it, it was dependent upon whether or not the crash was was short-lived um and again when i say transitory that means sh you know short-lived in nature and it could be it's a difference between a few days which you could make a lot of money um in volatility or if it's a few quarters then you're talking about a recession so in a short-lived correction Again, TVIX was, I think, was up over 100% um, between uh, February 2nd and, and February 5th um, when the Dow dropped. And I think it was in the aggregate, it was probably like 1,700, 1,800 points. Um, and then you're always going to have the safe haven, you know, type of blue chips like Amazon, Google, and Facebook. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be inclined to bet against them. Um, so you know, economic indicators aside, um, if it's a quarter over quarter recession, 
I mentioned this again on Friday, I said that, uh, you know, safe haven blue chips that yield respectable dividends are recommended, as well as reputable banks, such as uh, JP Morgan Chase and Morgan Stanley. Um, I also mentioned a few hedge funds that to follow, um, you could follow them on, on Twitter. Um, you can follow them on LinkedIn, uh, you know, such as uh, Bridgewater Associates. Um, they're by far the most transparent, well-managed and funded hedge fund in the world. Um, the Citadel's another one, but you know, Bridgewater, uh, I, I, I can't say, I can't say enough good things about them, uh, because during the financial crisis, they were one of the, you know, the, the top earners for their clients in, in, in the biggest downturn we've seen since the great depression. And, you know, as, as far as if you really wanted to dig into it, um, and, and there are, are advanced methods in which to value a company as well. You know, for investment banks, we use a measure based on the bank's market share. Um, we also use natural logarithms of uh, target market or sectors, you know, as they value uh, the less than natural logarithm of a potential acquirer's market value. So this is really prominent in uh, merger and acquisition periods that typically occur uh, during a pullback. So in that scenario, we'd review uh, the acquiring company and the target firm's ratio of market-to-book assets as a proxy for the degree of a firm's growth opportunity in the future. And we'd also take a look at the firm's leverage ratio in that fiscal year. So typically during market crashes, you know, again, companies do engage in M&As and the larger companies or you know, the bidding firm, um, they see gains from 20 to 35%, whereas the acquired firm really sees about zero to negative gains. Um, you know, a, a few other ways to properly gauge uh, the, I would say the validity as well as the profitability of a potential merger is to find which law firm is representing the bidder. And that's something that we can do um, if you're interested, but this is pretty easy. All you have to do is go into vault.com, which lists the top 100 law firms. And again, you can kind of see, you know, in correlation, what investment bank is providing consulting services to these companies. So you'll know how well, you know, that M&A is structured. And if it's a, it's a big company, you're going, it's, it's going to hit the street and you can get in early. And even though you might not walk away with 35%, you could still walk away with 15 or 20%, even in a downturn in the bad market. Fantastic. All right, question number 11, talking a little bit more about the bear market strategy. What is the best strategy to protect yourself during a bear market if you're a long-term investor? Do you write out the volatility or do you average down? And what signals would you use to confirm the end of said bear market? So those are, I think that's about three questions in one. <laughs> um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tackle, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the low-hanging fruit here for a second, um, because it's actually what's most important um, and will apply to the rest of them. Um, Aaron, I think you said, what are the signals you look for to confirm a bear market? Absolutely. Uh, if it's coming to an end, is that what you said? Yes. What signals would confirm the end of a bear market? Okay. So there are a bunch of different entities that we look at on a weekly basis here. Um, we, we take a look at the National, National Bureau of uh, Economic Research, which is a private institution, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, the Census Bureau, the United States Bureau of Economic Analysis, um, because they give us indicators, um, the leading indicators, you know, that, that help gauge 
um, movements in the stock market about six to nine months you know, before they occur. They help us forecast long-term what's going to happen. So if we were in a bear market scenario and we were trying to look for the bottom, um, some of the things that we could do is that we could take a look at the average weekly hours in manufacturing. Um, this all comes from the conference board's uh, leading economic indicators index. So we're going to look at average weekly hours in manufacturing because the adjustments of working hours to existing employees are usually made in advance of um, new hires or layoffs, which is why the measure of average weekly hours is a leading indicator for changes in unemployment. And that's really important because we can also take a look at average weekly jobless claims for unemployment insurance. Um, the initial jobless, jobless claims data is a bit more sensitive to business conditions than other measures of unemployment. And that kind of leads us to look at the monthly unemployment data released by the U.S. Department of Labor. It helps us deduce if, if it's, we're in a contractionary period. Um, we're also gonna take a look at manufacturer's orders for consumer goods and materials. Why? Well, because our economy, meaning the, the United States economy is based off of the 76% is consumption. So if consumers are, again, if we're in a contractionary period and consumers start to consume more after you know, a pullback, you know, we'll be able to see it quarter over quarter. Um, that is probably a, a pretty good signal as to us coming out of it. Um, and we would monitor that, monitor that, you know, month over month and, and try to see those upticks. Um, we can also take a look at vendor performance, um, like slower deliveries, uh, diffusion index, um, manufacturer's orders on uh, non-defense capital goods, Again, this is really good for, for production and um, maybe rising demand. You know, so um, we're also going to take a look at uh, building permits for new private, uh, private housing starts. So, you know, again, the housing sector is, is huge to the United States economy. Um, and, and the more homes that are being built is, a, you know, is, is kind of a precursor to uh, people having disposable income or wanting to invest, you know, in, in the biggest purchase they're ever going to make in, in a new home. Um, you know, in a, in, in, a, in a recession, people aren't buying homes. Um, you know, they're, they're staying put. So you'd be able to tell from, from that data uh, alone, coupled with a couple of the unemployment or the employment data, you'd be able to see that. And then, of course, you're going to take a look at the S&P 500 stock index. Um, you know, the S&P 500 is considered the leading indicator because it changes in, in stock prices reflect investors' expectations, right, for the future economy and interest rates. So market expectations are huge. Um, and of course, you're going to look at corporate earnings as a leading indicator for the GDP, uh, the M2 ver uh, element of the money supply. Um, let's see. Probably the interest rate spread on 10-year treasury versus the federal funds target. There's correlation there. Um, the interest rate spread is often referred to as the yield curve, and, and it kind of implies the expected direction of short-term, uh, short medium, and long-term interest rates. And uh, the changes in the yield curve have been one of the most accurate predictors of downturns in the economic cycle. So 
if we start to see a shift in that curve, again, that would give us ample data to, you know, make an educated guess that we're, we're coming out of it. And then of course, the last one is um, consumer sentiment. As I said earlier, you know, if, if consumers aren't spending, um, you know, it being 76% of the United States economy, if they're not spending, you, that's easily trackable. And when they start spending, more importantly, that's how we're going to be able to see when we're coming out of it and, and get in and, and really buy up the market and go long. All right, let's move on to number 12. That was a really good question. So number 12, continuing to look at the macro side of things, what regulations or lack thereof do you see as the most detrimental to the United States? Okay, so most detrimental regulation. Um, I talked about this a little bit on Friday, and I said that I thought that Dodd-Frank was probably the most detrimental regulation, and it's because a lot of people don't understand the legislation. One of the main one of the key points in the Dodd-Frank legislation, which was instituted after the financial crisis, is that it takes away the lender of last resort uh, ability for the Federal Reserve to step in in a crisis and inject, or, you know, engage in capital injections if, if needed. Um, so taking a look at the piece, you really have to ask, what does the evidence suggest? Meaning like, what do the numbers illustrate? And then what do they confirm? So, you know, just real quickly, the deposit and non-deposit U.S. Uh, financial systems liabilities, the 60% of those funds are on short-term funding, which means 30 days or less. And that's in the non-banking sector. So when I say non-banking, think like MetLife and AIG. Um, and there are conflicting ideologies of what regulation is needed versus which ones aren't, um, which is why lobbyists earn substantial amounts of income from Wall Street but we do have the tools to measure where the regulation is inefficient and where it's valuable. So again, you're going to receive a debate uh, on this, but if you're talking about regulation and generalities, there are several safeguards that we do have um, that may or may not, and I know that's amb uh, ambiguous, but it, it'll catch on the more we talk. Um, you know, these safeguards help measure uh, regulations and, and, and bank and financial sector health. So you've got risk-weighted assets approach, the leverage ratio approach, um, the, the, the Basel liquidity requirements and liquidity coverage ratio, which begins in uh, 2019, so next year. Um, and they're unencumbered high quality assets, like for 30 days worth of liabilities equal to 100% of their net cash outflows over a 30 day period. That's really important um, because cash and central bank reserves and marketable securities with a 0% risk weight, those are all considered to be highly liquid. Um, and and the, more, the more that a bank has of those, it doesn't necessitate that they're, you know, going to receive less scrutiny relative to regulation, but it means that the financial sector as a whole could very well be better off um, because then, you know, this all comes into play. I'm pretty sure a lot of you have heard of stress tests. 
So stress tests, all financial institutions, especially if they're globally significant financial institutions, have to go through stress tests um, through their respective central banks. So here in the US, we have the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve does an analysis of a bank's capital adequacy over varying adverse economic scenarios, normally very like highly adverse scenarios. So they do this every three years and all bank holding companies, they have to construct a comprehensive capital analysis and review. And you know the Federal Reserve puts them through a crisis-like uh, scenario. And then the Fed supervises the stress test and um, they take a look after the fact and they look at the exogenous or external shock and, and they basically have a look at what would then affect uh, on an endogenous or internal scale, uh, which would then project earnings and losses. So that is in fact a regulation that the Federal Reserve may not be able to conduct uh, after 2019 on a every three year basis, um, should we not get some rollback on the Dodd-Frank? Um, and, you know, the firm has to take advisements from the Fed, but ultimately they have to have stress tests for their own shortcomings. Um, and I think I did mention on Friday, the, this is the last thing I'll say on the decision, uh, because it has, it has an implication to the job market, which is, I, I feel is pretty important. And so the Dodd-Frank legislation through one of its mechanisms has the capability to reduce home loans by 20%, which would yield 600,000 less few home sales, which would cost about 1 million in housing starts, which we just talked about, you know, a key economic indicator, which would further yield about 3.8, 3.9 million fewer jobs. And what this would ultimately do, this regulation would translate into a gl globally suppressed GDP, which would probably lead us to more avenues of shadow banking, which is a topic for another time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Adam touched on a number of, of huge points, you know, I mean, investment banks they're, they're put under a lot of pressure to abide by these regulations right and um you know when when they don't they're fined heavily you know we've seen it we've seen wells fargo we've seen deutsche bank you know they struggle to come back from these things and um you know when you know fines against regulation happen there's a lot of repercussions right and these these uh companies are major components of large indexes right that many people are, are bought into for retirement and it has negative effects on, on the total economy. So it's important to um, not only understand, but, you know, abide by them as well from that perspective. All right, let's hop into the crypto discussion here. <clears throat> We're going to keep talking about bear market, but let's move it to crypto. The question is, as the crypto market is down, as, at least for the last about 30 days or so, can I take money from my 401k and put it in now that we're at this really nice low Bitcoin dropped quite quite large took a nice hit off the top as well as some of the other large coins should we move money for our from our 401ks and put it in or is there a better way to do it um i think i think we've discussed the penalties of taking money out of your 401 so uh, personally on this side of the line 
uh, with, you know, speaking with John and I, I we're not going to advocate for you taking money out of your 401k in any circumstance other than an emergency. So that's, I mean, that's, that's the answer for that. Um, yeah, no. All right. Number 14. Is this a good time to add cryptocurrency or should we wait for a better opportunity? I think it's a great time to add cryptocurrency. Um, you know, we, John and I were talking about this the other day and Goldman uh, came out with a, a you know, a, an article that said cryptocurrency is going to zero. And I, I said, okay, now it's time to buy because anytime Goldman tells you uh, one thing, they're doing the opposite. So Goldman, uh, a couple of weeks ago came out and said, oil's going to 80 and that's when it had breached 65. And so I sold, <laughs> um, uh, Goldman says these things, you know, and, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to spook, uh, retail traders and out of their positions are trying to shake you out. And so, okay, but again, this, this just came out like five or six days ago. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's a great time to buy it. Um, the technology behind cryptocurrency is disruptive, which is terrific. It's going to revolutionize um, the way we do business. Um, you know, it, it already has. So, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not one to 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 tell you, you know, wait. Um, you know, measure your you know, what you could, what you could uh, rationally afford. Um, again, analyze the, the currencies you're getting into, or, you know, feel free to speak to uh, Aaron or, or Chris, you know, uh, AKA Mr. Sir. You could talk to, I mean, you, you, and you could talk to, you could probably talk to Kevin as well. Um, you know, if, if you, you know, he, Kevin, Kevin is, uh, you know, one of the, one of the finest crypto uh, traders, uh, I, I, I've i come to know, and I've known Kevin for years, um, and he he is tried and tested as far as cryptocurrency is concerned. But you know, if you want an immediate response, um, I mean, within like literally seconds, Aaron's your guy. <laughs> and you know, like Adam stated, I mean, you know, when you have you take the two top investment banks on Wall Street, you know, and one of the CEOs of one of the two says in the beginning years ago that you know. It, didn't believe in it, and all of a sudden now he does. Jamie Diamond, yeah. and uh, and and then you have another one where they're setting up a cryptocurrency trading desks and and, and you know building out that function. It's because not only did they believe in the product, but they believe in in the revenue making ability behind it. So yeah, it's uh, it's probably the most optimal time. Yeah, that's right. All right, number fifteen, continuing in cryptocurrency. With the recent news last week about China wanting to stop their people from participating in crypto, practically speaking, is this possible? Or wouldn't this just boost the use of VPNs for uh, that population? Yeah, I, re I remember this question. So, um, I, first of all, China is telling their people, China's like Goldman, okay? So China's telling their people not to buy, Okay, and, and that's fine. Um, but shadow banking plays a major role in China's economy. So, you know, and a lot of the banks in China are state owned banks. So I'd be really surprised to see China in any capacity, I think, 
effectively dissuade an industry that they could easily profit from if they just regulated it. Um, you know, as I said during the other webinar, people fear what they don't know. I think I used my Indian experience, uh, my first time to India as a prime example of people simply fearing what they aren't predisposed to. And ultimately you can learn about, you know, you can learn about and from your fears and find out that there's really nothing to fear at all. All you have to do is research it and study it and ask questions. And uh, China is an incredibly intelligent country. Um, they, I think that uh, again, um, they, they may or may not be saying one thing similar to, to that of Goldman. So, you know, take that advice for what it's worth. All right. Number 16, this one is geared towards myself, Kevin and Chris, Mr. Sir, what crypto indicators should you use when day trading? So I want to start this one off by discussing number one, using indicators in stock. Everything from moving averages, your RSIs, everything you can think of has been academically tested to either work or not work. Get rid of human error, all else equal. In crypto, in day trading, long term, it doesn't matter. No indicator has been academically tested. Because crypto is a very different market, we can't just automatically assume something works. However, if we look at moving averages, if we look at volume, we're noticing that some of these indicators are fantastic for day trading. And that's because, that's because everybody is using it. So if I use, let's say, a 2050 moving average crossover on the one hour chart, every time you see that in Bitcoin, for example, the price goes drastically in one direction. And it's because everybody is watching it. The moment it crosses, everybody buys it. And as we know from just basic trading, that causes it to move. So that's one of the main indicators we look at. Just simple moving averages. Use your 20, your 50, your 100, your 200, and just look at what, what time frames are best. If you're looking at a day trading position, look at the five minute. If you're looking for one to two days a week, whatever, look at your daily chart, look at your hour chart, see, see what has worked in the past and then use that now, but do realize that they're not set in stone, academically tested. As far as day trading, the number th number one thing you want to look at is volume. We talked about the, the 2050 crossovers. If you see a 2050 crossover and there's no volume to back it up, it's not going to move. So keep that volume on your chart. And if you see a huge influx, take a look at what indicators are moving, what indicators are crossing, and then make the position accordingly. But if you don't see any volume, no matter what indicators are, are crossing or going on, whatever, don't touch it because it's not going to move. So that's, that's my two cents. Let's hop into number 17 now. Crypto in the real world applications. Where do you see crypto in real world applications that would help it catch on to the majority adoption and more useful than current currencies in use? Is crypto a replacement for current currencies or just something along the side that will help it? Okay, so I remember this question as well. And I, I, we took a quote from the chairman of the CFTC, which is the Commodities Futures and Trading Commission, as well as the chairman of the SEC, and they, they mirror one another. 
essentially what they said was that um, we are entering into a new chapter of economic history. Um, they noted that cryptocurrencies are impacting trading and markets in the entire financial landscape. Um, they said that they have far ranging implications for capital formation and transfer of risk. Um, the technology behind uh, cryptocurrency, uh, you know, has been likened to the, they include machine learning, AI, algorithm based trading, data analytics and smart contracts, valuing themselves and calculating payments in real time, as well as, you know, distributed ledger technologies, which over time may challenge traditional market infrastructure. And the key word there is traditional market infrastructure or key phrase. Um, you know, they, they, they summed it up as to say that we owe it to this new generation to respect their interest in this new technology with a thoughtful regulatory approach. And if you're not familiar with monetary policy, as the central bank, you know, as the United States central bank goes, so goes the rest of the world most of the time. Um, it's similar to that of our financial regulators, especially the CFTC and the SEC. Um, you know, we have dozens of regulators, but those, in my opinion, are the top two. And if they're inclined to regulate crypto, um, China's not going to have a problem with that. They're just going to want to have a, a conversation so that they get their part. As you guys know, Singapore and Switzerland are already, you know, incredibly favorable with their with their policies. They're, they've been called like crypto nation and um, are a safe haven for cryptocurrencies. Um, China predominantly, you know, historically, uh, they, they, they come from a command economy legacy. So the regulatory authorities have, you know, they made it clear um, that, you know, they, they really want to crack down again on cryptocurrency. But the thing is, is that um, the, the reason why they're saying that is because they don't want cryptocurrency to have power over the economy. I feel that once they understand the extent to which the technology will benefit the economy, they'll go all in as well as India. And at that point, you know, you've got 40% of the global, you know, the global population uh, able to, you know, access and effectively trade without having to feel, um, you know, like they're, they're, they're being like, they're committing a crime or something like that. Um, I think, you know, cryptocurrency, what they really want to do, they just want to reduce the volatility. But I would argue that, you know, especially what John mentioned uh, with, with, with the volatility spikes because of, um, you know, sh uh, shorting uh, volatility for so long. And, and then, you know, a lot of people, I'm, I'm certain, cut margin calls. But reducing volatility is a goal of regulators across the board, stocks, options, futures, all that, not just crypto. So, you know, that's that's going to be a common theme. You're, you're always going to, you're going to hear this constantly that the reason why, you know, they want to regulate crypto the way that they regulate the markets is because it's too volatile. Well, I would argue that the market is too volatile. Um, so it can go both ways and maybe I'll be an attorney on, on the other side one day. Uh, but until such time, um, you know, 
don't don't buy investments don't buy cryptocurrency on a credit card you know that's like that's like taking money out of your 401k don't do that you know it's 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 you know it's kind of like what lehman brothers did when when they were leveraged 25 to 1 um you know, it don't don't do that so you know there's there's a safe way to do it and uh, a smart way to do it and again that's what we're here for those are some really good points let's hop into a little bit more of the general picture number 18 with trading how can you reduce your losses um <laughs> well i think i just i think i just mentioned it watch your leverage if you're using any at all um you know watch your leverage um yeah i think that uh if i remember correctly lehman brothers their baseline balance sheet um the sec the chief regulator claimed that lehman was solvent about 30 days prior to their bankruptcy um they had about 639 billion dollars in assets and 613 billion in liabilities so that was yeah that's 25 to 1 and the capital cash on hand was roughly 4% of an equity cushion so it's like 26 billion the the inversion of the probability of distribution for that account you know, for for the tail risk was was ridiculous but you know just as the market and professional traders um you know and they'll preach to you on on ei all day long you have to exercise some semblance of discipline um understanding again a company's balance sheet the price to earning ratios opinions of interested outsiders such as suppliers and vendors and consumers um as well as uh you know externalities that may affect a company either positively if you're long and negatively if you're short that's that's really important that's imperative because you know it implies you understand the difference between perception and intuition of a trade versus the logical reasoned entry exit of a trade and that's that's purely behavioral i think um and it it, it requires that you understand yourself just as you do a ticker symbol so Mitigating risks wherever you can and being honest with yourself will yield gains otherwise not. And that's, again, that's, that's my opinion. I think the other thing we, we mentioned uh, the other day was you know, to be you know, an emotionally intelligent trader, right? And that's, I think that's what you know, Adam was saying to, to, a, to a key, right? I mean, no matter what the product you're trading, you, you can't get emotionally attached to that, right? You need to set a price target and, um, and also set your limits, right? So when, you know, cap it when you need to sell and, and when you're at that target, you know, be specific. Um, that's that's what separates, you know, an, a very intelligent, sophisticated trader to, you know, someone that's uh, more on the average side, right? So, I mean, have a target. Um, also, you know, try and develop hedging strategies against that, right? We can talk about that when we have more time. Anyone wants to reach out to me, you know, in the option space, there's plenty of hedging strategies where you can um, mitigate your losses. But, you know, on a more... Um, high level it's really just having you know placing a limit order or you know having those stop levels in place where you know you can get out before um you know it's too late all right let's hop into question 19. if you held stocks from 2007 and prior so very long term presuming there's another major correction looming would it be wise to sell a portion of those stocks at all-time highs or just a few dollars from all-time high or what would you recommend um i think i think the question really is 
what's the easiest thing to do versus how can I make the most money during a downturn and a market correction? Um, and that would be predicated on the underlying assets in a retirement account, because I'm assuming that that's what we're talking about as a retirement, like a 401k or, or if you're, if you have a portfolio, um, and you're managing it yourself, you know, the extent to which you can edit the allocations in that portfolio, that matters. Um, you're going to want to know how your retirement portfolio uh, is modeled um, if it is a 401k. So, you know, asking your broker what's in that model is your right. And, you know, one of the other questions that I, I would be inclined to ask would be, um, how quickly can I pivot in the event, you know, uh, a pivot from, from one allocation to another in the event that, you know, something like the, you know, the housing crisis were to replay itself, but just in a different form. So if every person, you know, if everybody, you know, 8%, 10% of Americans started defaulting on their credit cards, which they already have. Um, what's it going to take? What percentage is it going to take before, you know, banks, banks realize that this is a systemic issue? Um, you know, what's, what's going to prompt, what's going to prompt a crisis? Um, and, but understanding the underlying assets is really, truly important. All right, so that's question number 19, our last user-submitted question for at least this Q&A. We're going to be doing another one in about two weeks. We're going to try to do them about twice, maybe three times a month if we get a lot of questions. But I want to thank everybody who was able to join us for today's Q&A, and especially those who weren't able to make Friday, which is why we, why we did this second part for you, made sure that you were able to hear it live. And this recording will be available tonight. That way you can go back and listen to any of the questions that you might have missed a point or if you needed a little bit of extra guidance. So without further ado, I'm here with Adam, John, and myself, Aaron from the EI team, signing out and happy trading.